0: I stayed with Lieutenant Dan and celebrated the holidays. You have a great year. Hurry home. God bless you. Have you found Jesus yet, Doug? I didn't know I was supposed to be looking for him, (laughs) sir. That's all these cripples down at the VA. That's all they ever talk about. Jesus, this, and Jesus, that. (laughs) Have I found Jesus? They even had a priest come and talk to me. He said, God is listening, but I have to help myself. Now, if I accept Jesus into my heart, I'll get to walk beside him in the kingdom of heaven. Did you hear what I said? Walk beside him in the kingdom of heaven. Well, God is listening. I'm going to heaven, Lieutenant Dane. Oh? Huge thanks to our awesome production team who was able to clean that up a little bit for us tonight. Yay, no swear words in church. I also want to give a a huge thanks to all of our um, student volunteers tonight. We have students in the worship team, students in the ushering team. Uh, We're blessed as a church with that, so thank you. It's a movie that needs very little introduction, Forrest Gump. Um, Lieutenant Dan Taylor, played by Gary Sinise, uh, is Forrest Gump's platoon leader in the Vietnam War, and he loses both of his legs in a firefight that Forrest Gump saves him from, pulls him out of. And uh, throughout the course of the movie, as his character develops, he experiences the very justifiable anger and frustration about what has happened to him the loss that he has experienced, but he also develops this this nuanced character development of somebody who feels like he would have been better off dying in war than having this happen to him, that that was actually how the story was supposed to go, that that where he is right now and who he is and who he's become and what's happened to him, that's not how the story was supposed to be written, the story of his life. I did uh, a little bit of math this week, which is really dangerous. Uh, I didn't get into ministry because I'm really good at math. But if you just add up over the last 100 years of of history in the United States, 64 of the last 100 years we've been at war as a country. We've experienced 36 years of peace in the last 100 years. And it's become part of our culture such that the generation that you were born into is even defined by the war that was going on when you were born. Like that's how we mark our generation and our time. If you're born in the 30s and 40s, you know World War II is kind of the defining cultural moment of your generation. In the Korean War in the early 50s, if you're born in the 50s and 60s and even into the 70s, the Vietnam War was a part of your generation. 70s and 80s, the Cold War and all the conflicts that were in South America and Eastern Europe, that's a part of that generation. The 80s and 90s, the Gulf Wars and the conflicts in the Middle East. And if you were born anytime in the last 19 years, all you've known is war as a part of our country. This isn't meant to disparage uh, anyone's military service. I have family and friends who have served almost in every one of those uh, conflicts, and I'm, I'm grateful for their sacrifice. I'm inspired by your sacrifice, if that's part of your story. It's not about that. But what Ash Wednesday actually gives us the opportunity to do is to ask some very hard questions about our life and to ask that question, is this how the story is supposed to go? Are things going in the right direction? Is that the general sense we get? Or is the status quo that we've kind of just slipped into and accepted, have we just gotten used to it? Because this is Ash Wednesday, and and at the end of the worship service, when we take communion together, one of our volunteer leaders is going to mark your forehead with a cross made of ashes, and they will speak these words to you from Genesis chapter 3, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is a reminder that this is the one life that we have. This is your one life. There's not another one. And that this life matters. This life that you're living right now matters to God. It's important to Him. That Ash Wednesday is not just about reminding us of what happens when we die. Feeling secure in the fact that that once this one life has expired, that we are sure of our salvation, that we know we're going to get into heaven. That's important, but that's not the goal of life. Just knowing where you're going to end up is not the goal of life. Heaven is the reward, But the life, the goal of our life, Jesus tells us, is to have life in abundance. John 10.10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. God cares about this life, how we live here and now is important to him, it's important to us, and we need to ask ourselves, is it going the way we thought it should? Because that's what our scripture reading is for tonight. Matthew chapter 5 is this famous sermon that Jesus preaches, the Sermon on the Mount, it starts off with 12 verses of beatitudes, of blessings, and, and Jesus is talking about in this, in this sermon, these two chapters of the book of Matthew, how to make this life count, that this life is important, that what we do today matters and God cares about it, sees it, wants to call it blessed in our scripture reading. It's tempting to jump right into that, right? These, these blessed are you verses of, of Matthew chapter 5, the beatitudes in Latin, but we miss something when we skip the first two verses. We, we miss who Jesus is actually talking to, who Jesus is calling blessed. So, this is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. It sets the scene for this great sermon. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach to them. The, the subject of this sentence shifts halfway through. There's a crowd that is gathered, they're there to see Jesus. And Jesus goes up on a mountainside, and then the subject shifts to the disciples, and the disciples gather around Jesus, and Jesus starts teaching them, his followers, the people who are following Jesus with their lives, that's who this sermon is actually for. Jesus is talking to them. Now, he's speaking it so that the whole crowd can hear. He wants everybody to hear what he's about to say, but he's focused on who is actually following him because theirs is the life that is blessed. Theirs is the life that he wants to address, to reassure, to let them know what it means to be one of his followers. That's who the sermon is pointed at. Because the crowd that's out here in this this mountainside, it's not full of people who are especially interested in Jesus. Some of them are, but it's full of people who are religious leaders who feel threatened by Jesus upsetting the status quo, asking hard questions and actually taking away power from people in positions of authority. It's full of people who are looking to trip Jesus up, looking for a way to arrest Jesus, to kill Jesus. That's who's in part of this crowd. There's part of this crowd that are just there to to see the show. They've heard Jesus can do some amazing things and they want to see it for themselves. And they're just checking things out. Now, Jesus wants them to hear what he's about to say because the motivation is that they would actually choose to leave the crowd and join the movement. To get off the sidelines, As a spectator, and actually join the ranks of the followers of Jesus Christ. And then he launches into what that following looks like. So I want to break down what are the differences that we see between a crowd and a Christ follower? How does that distinction play out? And maybe ask ourselves where do we find ourselves today? The crowd first believes. There are people in that crowd who believe that what Jesus is saying is true and good. They might even believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. They have intellectually assented to these faith claims. They've got it up here. But a Christ follower actually follows. A Christ follower actually says, because I know what I'm hearing is true, because I believe this person of Jesus Christ is the real Son of God, then I'm going to go with him wherever he goes. I'm not going to leave his side. He is going to be the leader of my life, the Lord of my life. When Jesus commissions his church, that's what he tells us our mission statement is supposed to be. So in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus has been crucified. He's risen from the grave. He's about to ascend back into heaven. And he tells his disciples, this is your mission now. This is what I want the church to do. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Not go, therefore, and make believers of all the nations. Not go therefore and make converts of all the nations, students of all the nations, seminarians of all the nations. That's not the mission. The mission is to go out into the world, following Christ into the darkness, and to find people who are going to follow Him with their life, to continue the movement of the Christian faith, following Jesus where He's going. The next thing that that is a, a stark difference, but a subtle difference, is that the crowd hears Jesus. They're there and they're hearing what he has to say. And oftentimes, I think that's where we find ourselves in our life. We're hearing it. We might have heard it a thousand times, but a disciple is one who actually listens, who really listens and internalizes what Jesus is saying and says that that is so significant that I have to do something about it, that there's something uniquely different about what I'm hearing that I want to pay attention. I want it to actually shape my life. There was an instance in Luke chapter 11 where Jesus is preaching a great sermon to another crowd. And in Luke 11, a woman actually comes out from the crowd after the sermon, and she says, blessed is your mother, for she conceived you, and she birthed you, and raised you. Your mother must be blessed. Blessed is your family and your parents, and Jesus responds and says, no. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and actually do what it says. Blessed are the people who take this seriously, who pattern their lives after it, who say that this is the way I'm going to live my life. This is the number one book, best-selling book in the history of the world. Every single year, this book sells more than any other book. We've got more copies of this in our houses than we know what to do with gathering dust on our shelves. How can it be that this is the best-selling book in the history of the world, and yet 64 out of 100 years, we are at war with each other? When this book preaches peace, when this book preaches forgiveness and for your enemies, for praying for those who persecute you, If we actually heard and listened to what this book was saying, it would change the way our world looks. It would change the way our lives look. Things would be different if we actually listened to this and did what it says. That's the difference between a crowd and a follower, actually taking this seriously enough to pattern your lives after it. And finally, the next difference is that the crowd is amazed. The crowd is amazed. At the end of this great sermon that Jesus preaches, it says that many were amazed who left that day. The people left awe-inspired. That was a great message, Jesus. Never heard anything like that. We are impressed by what you have to say. We are impressed by your miracles. And then they go home and live lives as though it didn't matter, as though nothing had really changed. A follower of Christ is actually activated by what, what amazes them about Jesus. They see something so powerful about the person and work of Jesus Christ, God's Son, saving the world, reaching out into the darkness to bring light to people who are lost and hurting that they want to actually do something about it. They want to put their lives into action. They want to go where Jesus is going activated by what they see Jesus doing. In John chapter 6, Jesus is preaching another powerful sermon to a large crowd of people. Thousands of people, it says in John chapter 6, are are hearing what Jesus has to say. And so he uses that opportunity to say some really hard things about what it's like to follow him. Things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me, Jesus says. Things like, if you want to be a part of my movement and you want to follow me, then you must eat the bread of life, which is my body, that my body is going to be broken for you. If you want to be a part of my movement, if you want to follow Jesus, then you will actually drink the cup of the new covenant of my blood. And the disciples, the people who call themselves disciples, not just the 12, they said, this is hard. That's the language that's used in John chapter six. When Jesus finishes teaching, they say, this is too hard. How can anybody follow this? And in John 6, Jesus' crowd goes from thousands back to 12 in a moment. They leave because it got too hard. So Jesus turns to the 12 and he said, are you going to leave too? And this is what Peter responds. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Just because it's hard doesn't mean we're going to stop following you. Maybe even because it's hard, we're going to follow you, because that's really what it means to live a blessed life. The Greek word that gets used in Matthew chapter 5 when it keeps saying, blessed are you, etc. Maybe some of your translations say, happy are you. It's this Greek word, makarios, that comes from the idea of being enlarged. Literally made bigger. God wants to make your life bigger. God wants to make you have a life of significance, to give you the kind of importance that, that you deserve. That your life will be important. That's what blessed means. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 5. That's what blessings are. When we say, well, what's in it for me, Jesus? If I give up all this stuff, if I actually do what your Bible says, what's in it for me? And Jesus says, your life will be one of significance. And I wonder how many of us go through life wondering, does my life mean anything? Does my life matter? And Jesus says, when you follow me, it absolutely does. That's the best possible version of your life. An enlarged life. And he gives us some ideas of what this this means because even in Jesus' context and the way that Jesus teaches things, it's not exactly how we think a blessing should go. We think about blessings in worldly terms. We consider blessings to be, you know, even, even noble good things, our good health and our family. We consider those to be blessings. Financial gains and all the stuff that we've got, we consider those things to be blessings. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not how to have a larger life, an enlarged life. These blessings are different. The first one he talks about is is that you are blessed who are poor in spirit. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. What does that mean? I wish I had a Greek word like on the other slide that would give some hidden double meaning. That doesn't mean what it's actually saying. It literally means blessed are you who are in poverty because you chose it. Blessed are you who sacrifice from your own life so that other people's lives can be made better. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of God. That the way to gain access to the kingdom of God is through sacrifice, through surrendering parts of yourself so that others' lives can be made better. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Lent is typically a season, traditionally a season, when we dedicate ourselves to fasting over the next 40 days starting today. Traditionally, we fast to remind ourselves that Jesus chose poverty That Jesus chose to leave the paradise and eternal comfort and glory of heaven to come down into this earth and to live a wretched, horrible, dirty, disgusting, painful, torturous life and to be murdered for us. That Jesus chose to be poor in spirit for us. And so during Lent, we fast to remind ourselves of that sacrifice, but also to align our will and our mentality with that of Jesus Christ. That we want to follow him into that idea of being poor in spirit to actually surrender parts of ourselves. And I wonder what that might be for you over the next 40 days. What is God calling you to surrender so that you would follow him more closely, so that he would be more for you than just an attachment to your life? When we treat Jesus as something that we just sort of add on to our already full life, the thing that we do on the weekends, the things that we just make time for every once in a while, that's not actually following Jesus. That's staying in the crowd. And Jesus has more for you more for your life, an enlarged life when you follow him with everything you've got. A person who took that literally was the Apostle Paul. When he decided and he had an encounter with Jesus Christ and he knew that he wanted his whole life to be shaped by Jesus, he wanted to follow him everywhere Jesus was leading him, he went out into the Mediterranean and he planted churches for the rest of his life planting churches and getting the movement going, making disciples of all the nations and taking the Great Commission seriously, literally becoming poor in spirit. And he writes to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, about what this life looks like and feels like, what it means to be blessed. He says, rather as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, "...in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the righteousness and power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live, beaten and not yet killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. That's the promise of the gospel. That's what it means to have a blessed life, an enlarged life, an abundant life, to give of yourself so that other people can be made rich in the kingdom of God. There's a person in our modern day who I think took that seriously, who understood these Beatitudes very well, who made himself poor in spirit, who lived through one of the wars of the last hundred years. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was born in Germany in the early 1900s, and he dedicated himself to becoming a pastor and a church leader. He was was a brilliant man. He He wrote a bunch of books. He got his doctorate in theology. And about the time he started taking over leading a church in Berlin and a seminary there too... That's when the Nazi empire and Hitler came to power. And they began to see the injustices of what was going on around them, these Christian leaders in Germany, including the injustice that that, uh, they changed the way that the churches operate, that Hitler declared himself the leader of the Christian church. So Bonhoeffer and Karl Barth and a bunch of their other uh, fellow Christian leaders who actually said, no, this says something quite different than that. And we're going to hear and listen what Jesus has to say, and we're going to pattern our lives after this, and not what anybody else says. They formed the Confessing Church in Germany, and one of the confessions that they made was that there's no Lord but Jesus Christ, and no law but the gospel, and we're going to follow that. And that tells us that we need to stand up in the face of great injustice. And they began writing and speaking about how what they were seeing around them and the persecution of the Jewish people and other other people groups in their community was absolutely wrong. This is what he had to say. Seek God and not happiness. This is the fundamental rule of meditation. If you seek God alone, you will gain happiness, and that's a promise. One of the Beatitudes that Jesus said is, Blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. Oftentimes, I think we interpret this as though it just means that, that those of us who are sad, that Jesus will comfort. I'm not saying he doesn't, but that's not what this sermon is about. Mourning is different than grief and sadness. Mourning is actually grieving on behalf of somebody else. When you see something happening to somebody else, that that's what grieves you and you mourn for them and you act on their behalf and you stand up in the face of injustice because that's another one of the Beatitudes. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for justice. And so when Bonhoeffer sees what's happening around him, he can't stand still. He can't sit idly by and let innocent people being persecuted and killed. He writes this in The Cost of Discipleship because he viewed following Jesus as a costly affair. He said, by mourning... Jesus, of course, means doing without what the world calls peace and prosperity. He means refusing to be in tune with the world or to accommodate oneself to its standards. Such men mourn for the world, for its guilt, its fate, and its fortune. While the world keeps holiday, they stand aside. And while the world sings, gather ye rosebuds while ye may, they mourn. They see that for all the jollity on board, the ship is beginning to sink. That's what it means to mourn. To look at the world around you and say, this is not how the story is supposed to go. And because I believe in Jesus, I'm going to grieve on behalf of others and perhaps act on behalf of others. Hunger and thirst for justice in my world. One of the things that we confessed during the prayer earlier was that we wanted to be sorry for the ways we haven't loved our neighbor as ourselves. This great command that Jesus offers The greatest command, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the other one, like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. What are the injustices that you see in your life, in your context, in your world, and the ways that you're seeking to address them? Are you brokenhearted for the things that make God angry about the ways that this world is going? And maybe that's lent for you. A lot of times we think about what are we going to give up for Lent. Sometimes we want to think about what are we going to add to our lives. What are the activities that we're going to take up that the Bible says are important. And that absolutely means that we have to take our eyes off of ourselves and our own pain. It's really hard to do. It's something I struggle with on an on a almost daily basis. And when Jesus said, blessed are the humble, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I think this might be the hardest one. I didn't used to think I had pride issues, and that's actually how I found out I had pride issues. (laughs) When you think you're okay there, that might be a sign that you might have some pride to work through. An unwillingness to surrender for the sake of others. Considering my personal comfort more important than that of other people, and that turns, at least in my life, that turns into almost a competitive spirit with other people, almost an angry spirit with other people. Feeding conflict rather than seeking peace. To actually take our eyes off of our own pain, our own suffering, our own discomfort, our own wants and desires, and and to see what what are the other people in this world going through that I could actually address, help, sacrifice to give back to, and to find some peace. I think that's a, a profound element of our lives that is completely missing right now. When was the last time you actually thought about peace in your own life and how important that is? When Lieutenant Dan is wrestling with all of these issues of his pain and his suffering and he's processing through that important question, is this how my life is supposed to go? Is this really the story of my life and how I want it to live? The eyes that are are focused on his pain lead to anger, lead to frustration, lead to combativeness. Until he finally starts to work out some of these issues, and he begins to seek peace. Let's take a look. So I went to church every Sunday. Sometimes Lieutenant Dan came too, though I think he left the praying up to me. It's funny because it right then, God showed up. He was mad! Come on! It's time for a showdown! You and me! I'm right here! Come and get me! You'll never see this (laughs) boom! Hurricane Carmen came through here yesterday, destroying nearly everything in its path. And is in other towns up and down the coast Biola Battery's entire shrimping industry has fallen victim to Carmen and has been left in utter ruin. Speaking with local officials, this reporter has learned, in fact, only one shrimping boat actually survived the storm. I think the the tagline for this um, night talk, Hope Wide, was uh, a good time to get right with God. I, I don't... I don't particularly know what that means. I, I, th- I spent a lot of time thinking about it as I was praying about this message. Um, oftentimes what I think we have in mind, when we, think, when we use phrases like that, I want to get right with God, or we, we, we enter into a time like Ash Wednesday where we're confessing our sins, the broken parts of our lives that we want to see made straight again, made whole again. And we, in, we, we have this concept, I think, that, that we do that because God is upset with us that I need to get right with God because He's angry at me for something that I've done, that I need to atone for things, that I need to make it up to God. And I don't see a lot of support for that idea in Scripture. I see instead a God who loves you unconditionally, who has done everything possible to make a way for you to have a relationship with Him, to live a full and abundant life with Him. And what I've come to experience, even in my own life, is that it's often me who is angry at God. Who is frustrated with him? Every year I, I try to take a, a retreat to spend a couple of days by myself just praying, um, working on a lot of those pride issues. Um, oftentimes I'll go to a, a retreat center or a monastery, and this is my favorite one over in Springfield, Illinois, the last time I was there from this last year, and I'll just spend some days praying about what, what God what, what's going on right now in my life and what do you want to address. And in years past I've used that language of I'm going I'm to go wrestle with God. Have you ever said that? I'm going to wrestle with God about it. I'm going to have a fight. I'm going to have a showdown, me and you, God. Like, where does that come from? Where do we have this antagonism with God? As though he's our enemy, our adversary who we're fighting with. I think it comes from that, that pride in us that says that there's competition, that there's war everywhere, and I'm going to be at war with God too. To get what I want, to get what I need, I'm going to fight with God about it. So instead, this time when I went, I decided I wanted to seek peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. I want to be one of God's children. I don't want to fight with God. I'm going to lose. I don't want to fight. And the Bible has a lot more to say about peace than I really realized. So when I really started to press into what the Bible says about peace, uh, a scripture came up. It'll be on the next slide. I'd like for us to read this out loud. This has really helped me in the last year, and I hope it helps you too this season. Let's read this from Romans chapter 8. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. But the sinful nature is always hostile toward God. Hostile toward God, not God hostile toward you. God loves you. God wants a relationship with you. God wants to call you His child. But when we live out of our sinful self, when we refuse to adopt those practices of following Jesus with our whole lives, when we are more concerned with the, the, the sinful nature, and some translations say the, the, the desires of the flesh, the worldly concerns of our life, that's when we can't live the life of peace that Jesus offers us. That blessing of peace, I think, is important. It's been important for me this last year. I think it's going to be important for you. What, what would it be like for you to seek peace in the next 40 days, to pursue it, to grab hold of it? I think it would mean surrendering a lot of the things that are getting in our way, letting go of some of the anger and the frustration that we have over the way the story of our life has gone to this point, and to maybe look for what God is going to do in the future as you decide to to step out of the crowd and into the, the community of followers of Jesus Christ, surrendering everything so that your life can have that full and abundant purpose that Jesus has planned. Let's take a look. Would you like to see what Lieutenant Dan looks like? Well, yes, I would. That's him right there. Hmm. And let me tell you something about Lieutenant Dan. Forrest. I never thanked you for saving my life. He never actually said so, but I think he made his peace with God. That's what Jesus is offering you tonight in the season leading up to Easter, as we remember the the great sacrifice that Jesus gave on our behalf to bring us peace and to make us peacemakers so that others can experience that too.